Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we talk to people active in the economy and uh, talk to them about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. You can check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services. Some are featured on this podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. In the studio today with Ben Quaintrell, Managing Director at My Property Box, and down the line we have Delphine Strauss, who's the Economics Correspondent at the Financial Times. And later in the programme, my colleague Josh Havikin will be talking to Alice McCullough, who's the Managing Director of Rose Dean Nurseries. Well, first of all, welcome to my uh, guests. Hello. Hello, Ben and Delphine. Nice to have a, a correspondent from... I suppose Europe and one of the world's most prominent business uh, publications. There you are at Financial Times headquarters in London. Now, I know you're an economics correspondent. What's, what's your dipstick uh, view of the sentiment of business at the moment in the economy? I mean, I think there's a lot of gloom around on the backdrop in terms of growth. Um, you know, the data has been showing that GDP has not been growing at all for much of the year. The forecasts we had last week from the Office for Budget Responsibility were pretty gloomy downgrades from what they thought in March. Um, and yet at the same time, you do see in some of the business surveys that you know people are still looking to hire. There may be more confidence out there than you know than some of some of this data shows. Yeah. I'd be interested to know what Ben's Ben's hearing and what you what you're hearing from contacts in the north. Well, we'll definitely get to Ben to hear about that in just a moment. Well, hold your horses, Ben, because I know that, Delphine, one of your uh, subjects that you look a lot into is the labour market. And, you know, I've often said on this podcast, I've been in the labour market myself since 1980 and uh, in the northeast of England, as it happens. And it's only in the last 18 months or so that the northeast of England has had unemployment rates that have been even near acceptable. In fact, today, the unemployment rate of the northeast is the same as the uk average and that's almost unheard of in my lifetime so there is a lot of change in not just whom how many people are employed but where in the country they are um yes i mean we have seen this really strong upswing in the labor market um ever since the covid lockdowns came to an end um with all kinds of drivers behind it um, partly just, you know, sheer enthusiasm for hiring, partly some of the worker shortages we saw after Brexit and um, and as a result of, you know, maybe some people having quit the labour market. Mm. And what's quite interesting at the moment is that although the labour market has been weakening over the last year, we've seen fewer vacancies advertised. We've seen unemployment creeping up a little bit in recent data. And we've seen, um, you know, I think recruiters would tell us that they're now finding more people applying for jobs. And we're when... flashing up some data uh, from uh, your paper, uh, which shows the, day, the rate of employment, which is it's 76%. It's gone down a little bit, not much, but it's gone down a little bit since the peak of 75, uh, 76.5. And the actual numbers in work are well over 30 million, 33 million. So it does appear to be quite resilient, albeit... As you say, there is a little bit of hesitation around the edges now, isn't there? Um, so one, one of the issues at the moment is that the official data actually isn't being published. There are some problems with how, how reliable the numbers are. Yeah. But 
I think looking across a whole range of surveys, we can see things are weakening, but they're still an awful lot stronger than you'd expect when the economy is at a standstill and when interest rates have just gone up this sharply. The, it's not, you know, it's not a normal downturn. The big, and recruiters talk about a really, really mixed picture between different sectors. So in some white collar areas, you know, consultancy, accountancy, law firms and so on, you have seen some quite big layoffs. Um, construction is in a real slump because, of course, they're hardest hit by high interest rates at the moment and a lot of house buildings on homes. But at the same time, you've got um, a care sector and a healthcare sector that's still struggling to hire, lots of hospitality businesses that can't hire. And, um, you know, employers who are only just starting to be able to fill some of the gaps they've had over the last couple of years. It's helpful to look at those sectors. One of the um, big debates in political life this week has been about the immigration data. Uh, I'm not talking about illegal immigration, I'm talking about legal migration for employment, uh, 745,000 people net uh, coming into this country over the last year. And and that is primarily being driven by the labour market, isn't it? Um, it's quite a mix. So the biggest number there was actually students, um, some of them encouraged by new visa rules that let them stay and work after they finished their course. Um, but yes, the ONS did say that an increasing share of it was work-related. Um, and that's been across all sectors in the last year or two, um, both the sort of high-skill sort of white-collar areas that have always hired from overseas, and then also increasingly more and more driven by um, recruitment to the NHS and more recently um, recruitment to quite low-paid entry-level jobs in the care sector, which is, on the one hand, certainly helping to ease, you know, a real crisis, and on the other hand, is a pretty bad sign that the sector just isn't equipped to hire in the UK at the moment. Yes, it is a sector. We, we've had people on from on this program from that sector. It's a sector that has a lot of problems because, to a certain extent, the fees that it can charge are set by the government and the subsidies that are available uh, from local authorities. And to a certain extent, the minimum wage sets the base rate, but it's also a very responsible and it's a, a job that is very difficult to get British people to work on. And then it's, they, I mean, it's a job that's generally paid at the minimum wage or not very far above the minimum wage. And it's an awful lot more difficult and more stressful than um, the other jobs you can do for that pay rate. This podcast has had a lot of businesses contact it this week uh, to talk about or asking to discuss the issue of the minimum wage with employers, because obviously the business podcast, very upset that the government chose the higher level of minimum wage that was available to it, because the low pay, as I understand it, you, you're more of an expert than I, the low pay commission could give a range that the government could set the minimum wage at, and they went for the higher, higher end of that. I think it's not so much that they had a range to choose from, it's that they had a target that's set by government to bring the minimum wage to two thirds of the national average, the national median, by next year. And it they were waiting for the data to come in to know what, you know, what's been happening to typical earnings, what's the data showing, so that they can finalise the number actually wages have grown much faster than we thought. Yeah. So the numbers ended up at the top of the range. That, that is a very helpful explanation because this two thirds 
uh, number um, was was a target, and therefore is is a government policy, not a not a mandate. But the low pay commission also is asked to recommend things that will not affect employment, and it still landed on the higher number, didn't it? So presumably, employers have just got to suck it up. But there are many employers having a a good old whinge about it. I said justifiably so in some cases. There are certain sectors, generally the ones reliant on government funding, mm. that are finding it a lot harder to meet that new minimum than others. Yeah. So I think what you see in a lot of low-paid sectors is that big employers have already moved ahead of the minimum. Yeah. So a lot of supermarkets and warehouse operators and so on have already felt the need to go well above the minimum to compete for workers. When you... And then sectors where we really see struggling are, well, areas like childcare, yeah. where wage costs are the vast proportion of their overall costs. And, you know, they're very influenced by the ratios they have to meet of staff to children and the requirements to that's coming in to offer you know, more hours of free childcare with set government funding. And so they're really finding themselves squeezed. And to, to be honest, a lot of I think a lot of you know providers have only managed to make it work in the last few years because they increasingly use apprentices who are paid below the minimum wage. Absolutely. And the, the, we're going to talk to a childcare provider later in this podcast about the because the, the, the policy that's being implemented by these childcare providers to increase the amount of uh, care available is also trying to tackle the worker shortage. It's part of the same jigsaw, isn't it? It is. It's one of the measures that Jeremy Hunt announced back in March that was potentially going to make most difference to bringing parents into work. Well, I'm glad we've had, I'm glad you've, you've you've raised a lot of those points on the program today because they are things that I'm hearing from our viewers and listeners. I want to just hold up for our listeners. I'm holding up a copy of the Financial Times from August this year, and this also talks about uh, jobs and employment, but in the northeast of England. And the article, which is "Civil Service Relocation Tests Hybrid Working," was written by Delphine when she visited Darlington for an article which I suppose could apply to quite a few northern towns where there have been government relocations. Tell us what inspired you to come to Darlington and to look at how things were working. Um, so it was a real pleasure coming to visit, especially in the middle of a, uh, of a fairly busy August. Um, I came because um, I wanted to see just sort of up close, how the Treasury's economic campus is working out there, um, how well it's working for the Treasury and how well it's working for the town, because it seems a really interesting experiment in civil service relocation that's not quite like what we've seen before. So we've had lots of examples of government depart departments moving this or that back office function um, away from London, um, but not very many attempts to move really cool bits of policy making and senior staff away from Whitehall and create a sort of non-London career route for high flyers who want to get to the top of the civil service um, without being, you know, without being in the capital. It's an interesting um, experiment. And, and you know, I happen to live in Darlington and uh, perhaps once a month the flashing lights of a police convoy start because the Prime Minister 
uh, actually works from Darlington uh, once a month. And we had people like the CEO of Google visit. It's a bit, a bit extraordinary, a bit out of the ordinary, to say the least. What was your conclusion? How did you, uh, well, you talked to a lot of people, I know. What, what uh, conclusions did you draw? Um, I suppose that it was a really interesting, positive so far, but quite precarious experiment at the moment. So it's obviously given the town a big boost in terms of businesses wanting to locate there. Lots of law and accountancy um, firms potentially sort of, you know, searching for commercial premises, quite a bit of pressure on space, boost property prices. Um, and just sort of generally kind of, you know, name recognition for Darlington. Um, I think the officials who are working on the campus love it and think they can make a go of it, but it's quite dependent on the goodwill of whichever ministers are in the Treasury and, and in number 10 at the time. So obviously at the moment, the Prime Minister's constituency is right next door and you know, the chancellors, well, the former and current chancellor have made a personal commitment mm. to be there and to, you know, work remotely with the officials who are there enough to make it work. It's not guaranteed that that would be the case under any government. And it is um, true. Of any so lot, of people, a lot of people I spoke to were quite nervous about what would happen next. I, I, it's true of all very large organisations, whether it be government or a large corporation, that proximity boss is all, isn't it? There's an element of geography comes into play when it comes to your authority. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, I mean, I think it was also very much sort of, you know, this can work if everybody wants to make it work. But um, one of the key things was that the Treasury wants it to be possible for any job at all to be done from any location, rather than trying to put you know, particular bits of policy that are seen as more relevant to the North in Darlington. And so that means you do get a proper career route. It doesn't matter where you're based, but it also means it's less obvious why policy is better off done in, done in the North, if you see what I mean. Yes. If you're, if you're working on an economic policy that's about exporting to Japan, why is it more rational to do it in the Northeast than it is to do it in London? But the other question is true as well. Why not? It's easy to prove. I, I, I suppose it, I suppose what you end up with saying, well, it's working fine, but there's no intrinsic reason why it should be here rather than somewhere else. Well, Delphine, you oh, when you came up here, you interviewed my other guest, uh, Ben Quintrell. Uh, you had a good chat with Delphine, and you feature in this article in the Financial Times. Tell, tell me the impact that has had. Well, it, it was it was fantastic for Delphine to come to Darlington and 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 and, and talk about all the. I'm very optimistic. All the exciting things that's been happening in in, in the town, and obviously the leveling up, leveling up has sort of begun. But uh, yeah, it had, a, it had a great impact. I had people messaging me from all over, actually the country that are from Darlington, friends I've grown up with at school that work in different cities, businesses in the area, and it just felt really, really positive and great. You know that uh, the Financial Times have, have reported on it, and um, yeah, really positive sort of feedback. Yeah. So what were you saying to Delphine when she came up? And it, it, it was still in summer. Are the things that you said still true today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, Delphine, the start said, you know, at the moment it is business to business, sector to sector, you know, how people are feeling. It is completely that. And I can only comment really from from the property side of things, but, but it is still fairly positive in the summer. At the moment, we've experienced like huge 
um, numbers of people wanting rental properties, for example, and a, and a massive shortage of property, serviced accommodation, hodl let, short term lets is taken off in the area. Um, so yeah, and that's because of the number of people living in the town and working in the town. So yeah, it, it does feel positive. Obviously, we've slowed down a little bit now coming towards Christmas, which which is natural. And uh, yeah, from a developer's point of view, property people are still looking to develop SME developers are still doing that now because demand is so high. But you might find that in a different area, that's not the case. You know, developers might be holding back, waiting for interest rates to come to come down, you know, waiting for um, commercial finance figures to drop. But at the moment in Darlington and surrounding areas, it's because demand is so high, which is driving up rental prices, figures still stack for developers to develop. Now, Delphine, you came to a northern town rather than a northern city and it has been the case that government departments have located to northern cities many times the national infrastructure bank located to leeds uh, and you've got many examples there's a huge H hmrc uh, complex in uh, newcastle there are many government departments located in manchester but the difference by bringing a a, a significant location uh, to a town it, it's like a a bigger pebble in a smaller pool and it creates a bigger wave. Did you think that's true? And Ben, to what extent do you think it's true? I suppose Delphine first, what was the impression you got? Um, so I mean, that was that, that was one of the reasons I wanted to come was because it's, it's, it, it applies not just to civil service relocation, but also to could any, you know, private sector business follow the same model now? Um, I'm not sure if Darlington's typical. Um, there was a lot of talk about how, in fact, you can recruit very much from the wider region because the transport links are so good. Mm. Um, and that was one of the key things to be able to, you know, recruit very wide range of people at speed. It, it might, quite it might be more difficult. It's still in a, competition with local employers. It might be more um, difficult in Cumbria or something like or an area where the where where, where maybe there are a, a less uh, a, a, a fewer towns around it. In practice, there were people commuting from Leeds. There were people commuting from around Durham. There were, you know, there were people coming in from a wider region. Um, in terms of the impact on the surrounding area, I think the effects would be very visible in Darlington, but it's still just not a big enough thing to really filter through to the wider region. All right, Ben, what do you think about the contrast between uh, a location like? A town like Darlington, which you could e easily transfer to towns in West Yorkshire or or County Durham or Cumbria, or a city Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, which and the, the Manchester, Leeds, and Newcastle were in competition for yeah. the Treasury. Well, I think I think Darlington's chosen because obviously it, with the level of policy of the North, but also because of its location. Obviously, we have the original railway that was built, which in two and a half hours we can get to London. We're on the Edinburgh line. It's quite centrally located. We have the Freeport over at Teesside that's coming off. It's centrally in the north. You know, we talk about the powerhouse of the north, but Darlington is right in the centre. So I think for, you know, um, companies wanting to relocate that, you know, um, that will work with the Treasury, you know, or, or you know, for, right around the Treasury, yeah, the, the opportunity is there. But as Delphine says, you know, because the transport links are good, then people don't have to live in the area. But it is still that, you know, powerhouse hub that people can can travel to for work or live. Uh, before I let you go, Ben, I just want to ask you a question about your specialist subject, housing. The new local housing allowance rate is going to provide households with some extra support uh, to help with higher rent payments. Is this going to filter through into yet higher rent payments? You're managing a lot of housing for yeah. private landlords. 
no, it's obviously anything like that is is good news, but I don't think it's quite enough of what's needed. Unfortunately, because demand is so high, you know that the rent levels now in Darlington, prime example, are just so high. Even with that uh, increase, it still it still doesn't quite meet the current. You're managing properties elsewhere as well. I know you're managing properties in Newcastle and Yorkshire. Uh, uh, is that is it the same situation elsewhere yeah. in the north of England? Yeah, or, you know, students, for example, we've managed a lot of properties in Jesmond in Newcastle. You know, room rents, for example, a couple of years ago for hundred pounds, hundred twenty pounds a week, they're up to one fifty, one sixty, one seventy now um, across across Jesmond. So in every different area where it serves accommodation, HMOs, buy to let properties, commercial rent levels have moved and, and that, mm. yeah. Well, Ben, thank you. Delphine, it's been lovely talking to you for the first time on our podcast. And the fact that you know quite a lot about uh, the labour market, I'm going to definitely phone you up and say, come on our podcast again to talk about jobs and employment. It was fascinating hearing those points. Thank you very much. Pleasure to join. Now let's turn to something else. Time to turn to my colleague, Josh Havakin, who's speaking to his guest this week about how new childcare support could help more people to find work. Thanks, Graham. This week, I'm joined by Alison McCullough, who is the Managing Director of Rosedean Nurseries. Thank you very much for joining us, Alice. Thanks for having me, Josh. Not a problem. So I understand you've got around 10 nurseries in the northeastern Yorkshire, around 1,000 children who are using your facilities. Um, but the government at the moment is very keen to get people into work, taking those economically inactive people doing what they can to remove some barriers and to encourage them to become economically active, that is, in work or seeking work, or at the very least in training or education. Now, childcare pays, pays quite a large part in that. Could you tell us a little bit about how, um, how your nurseries may be able to help move those people? Well, we, as you said, have got lots of nurseries across the region. We're just about to open a new nursery in the beautiful Stockton-on-Tees. And we provide amazing early years experiences for children from the age of naught all the way through until they're ready for school. Mm-hmm. And Rosine's quite unique in our ethos where we do a lot of child-led outdoor learning. And we employ over 135 fantastic early years practitioners. And uh, with the new government funding that you mentioned, um, which starts from April next year, this is allowing um, parents to be able to access support for childcare costs sooner. Um, And um, it'll enable people to get back to work quicker after maternity. And of course, it'll enable children to access early years education much uh, sooner in their childhood. So. You've mentioned some um, government support and, and funding. That was announced in the spring budget earlier this year. Can you give us a bit of an overview for that, please? Absolutely. So there already um, exists a three- and four-year-old scheme where children can uh, get 30 hours funded childcare per week. From April next year, children who are two years and above will be entitled to 15 hours childcare funding per week. And then from September, there will be 15 hours for for children who are nine months old and above. And the goal is for 2025 is that all children from nine months will get 30 hours funded childcare every single week. Okay, so that's brilliant for parents, but how's it going to help move some of those people who um, are economically inactive, aren't working or 
um, undergoing training at the moment. How's that going to help them move into uh, the workplace? Well, the goal is that the government want to provide the tools that give parents uh, the opportunity to access the childcare, uh, which is where we come in. Uh, I guess it's going to be down to the individual, it's going to be down to the local authorities and also small businesses in the area to be providing the jobs. And um, what we can do is just uh, say, get yourself down the road to the nursery. We, we're creating the future society, uh, especially in the north of England, and we're providing amazing experiences for those children every day. Brilliant. Okay. So it, it's more of a case of making it easier for people to find that childcare and making it more cost effective. So it actually pays to be working as opposed to um, spending more money on childcare than what potentially they, they may be earning. I think that's got a, a lot of potential to move some of those people. Because I mean, you know, you know yourself that um, the workplace doesn't evolve around childcare. Childcare needs to evolve around the workplace. And um, the scheme certainly sounds like it might do it. Um, Alice, I've just got to ask, you said you're, you're opening a, a new nursery um, in the near future. Tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. So we are hosting an open day next week, and this is a 72-place nursery in the heart of the Roseworth community. I will be working really closely with the Stockton Family Hub, and we're situated right next to North Tees Hospital and the Nuffield Hospital, so we'll be a real... Um, service there for all working families in the area and we'll be fully operational from the beginning of January so we have a full team and um, we have already 40 children who are ready to start in January so it's really really exciting time for everyone at Rosedean. So you said that's next week this this podcast is going out live on a Wednesday and um, put onto other platforms on a Friday do, do you know the date and the time of that open day and how can people find out about it? Yes, so we're offering a full day from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. And it will be on Tuesday, the 5th of December. And everybody's welcome. We will have um, lots of visitors, professionals, parents, and we're also um, letting um, our children meet Santa. So um, please just uh, pop along if you're in the area. We'd love to see you and um, let you uh, see all the facilities that we have to offer. Brilliant. Well, best of luck with your open day. And uh, I'm sure there's people listening who may just pop down to to see the big man himself anyway. So th thank you very much for your time, Alice. Thank you. Thanks. Now, back to you, Graham. Thank you, Joss and Alice. Now, if you'd like to join us as a guest on Northern Business Podcast, feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks today for my podcast producer, uh, Harry Sinclair, and our technical operator, Robin Campbell. Join us next time on the Northern Business Podcast. Don't miss an episode. Like, rate, and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.